Well, good morning. My name is uh, Jenner Juhas, and I'm a fellow member here at Redeemer Bible Church, as well as I'm one of the elders who's looking to plant Redeemer Stafford uh, coming up this fall. And I have the humble privilege of opening God's word here with you this morning while Vic's away with his family. And one thing I just want to note is I'm very thankful for the leadership of this church, that their willingness and their trust in the Holy Spirit is not in me, and it's not in man, and it's not in a single person to get up here and preach from the pulpit. They put their hope ultimately in God to speak through his word week in and week out. Again, it's not in a single man. It's not on the people up here. It's not on the people singing. It's not the people leading in worship. It's not in the individuals who open us and close us. It is completely and wholly in the word of God in the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we, with that in mind, we're going to try and finish up the book of Luke. Uh, has anybody been here the whole time we've gone through the book of Luke? I think September 19 is, is about as, uh, as far back as we can go. Um, we were not here, um, but, but I just want to make a point of this, that what a blessing and encouragement it is that we have a church that almost two and a half, three years took the time to walk through one book of the Bible. They didn't shy away from hard topics. They preached verse by verse, week in and week out. And I hope we can truly see that for what it is as we finish up the book of Luke and we move on to another book. Not many churches do that today. And the elders and the leadership here, again, they trust the power of God and they trust the power of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you see that for what it is because I think it's right. And it's such a blessing in my life and I hope it's been a blessing in your life as well. Well, as we dive into Luke, again, we're going to try and finish the book today. Uh, Lord willing, there's a lot in there. Um, but something that we want to do is look back at the beginning of the book of Luke. And you might ask, why would we look at the beginning if we're going to look at the end? Uh, something to remember why we would do this for the Gospels is that each book was individually written with a theme and a purpose by individual authors. Even though they play a larger role in the whole canon of Scripture, we should recognize individual books of the Bible as what they are, a whole book. And we should read them what's called vertically. That means from beginning to end, read the whole book as a whole, the individual books of the Gospels and the New Testament and the Old Testament. But we should also read them horizontally. That means in light of other aspects of Scripture. Uh, so we interpret Scripture with other Scripture. And God used authors to pen individual books to reveal his character and plan throughout the Bible. And we should not ignore this. The reason I bring this up is the account we're going to read today in Luke 24 is actually recorded differently in the, in the Gospel of John. So some might think that these are actually contradictory stories. So John records this passage in two different events separated by eight days. But what we'll see today is it's actually one passage according to Luke. But remember what I just said. God was using human authors to record as he thought necessary to show us what he wanted to see about who God was in his specific book that played a larger role in this canon of scripture. For example, if you were to ask your kids at the end of the day who you played with, one of them might say, well, at school I played with Jim, Michael, and Timothy, and then at practice I saw Sarah. And then you ask another kid, they just might say, I saw Timothy and Sarah. Both stories are absolutely true, and they're not contradictory. However, they differ in the point that the child is trying to make. And I would encourage you to think about this as we read through the Gospels and you come to passages that seem to contradict one another. And also particular to Luke's Gospel, and it's unique, is that it's a two-part series. So the first half we have what we've been going through is the book of Luke, and the second half is the book of Acts. We will reference Acts today as well, but I would encourage you as we finish the book of Luke today to take some time this week to read through at least the first couple chapters of the book of Acts and read them in light of what we've seen throughout the book of Luke. So with that in mind, I want to read some of the beginning of Luke, as well as our passage for today in Luke 24. So please stand with me as we honor God's word. 
Again, I'll be reading Luke 1, 1 through 4, and then I'll jump immediately over to Luke 24, 36 through 53. Feel free to follow along in both passages if you want, but if you're just going to pick one, I would, I would recommend the Luke 24 passage. Luke 1, 1 through 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In Luke 24, 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So as we come to our passage, I kind of want to maybe go back a little, a couple chapters as well and kind of set the scene for you. So Jesus' ministry was going on for about the last three years. He had been teaching and healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God throughout all of Israel. And then about a week ago, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where Jesus had been intending to go for some time occurred. It climaxed in Jerusalem. And when he got there, Jesus was crucified at the hands of the Jewish leadership, the Roman government and the mobs and the crowds and the people in Jerusalem. And then he was placed in a tomb. And it's recorded that the gospels that the women and the disciples of this time watched from a distance while all this was happening. We know that Peter even denied Jesus three times at his trial. And now it's the first day of the week as we come to this passage, the day in which Jesus was to be raised from the dead, the third day. And some of the women and Peter and John went to the tomb earlier that day, and they saw it was empty, but they still didn't believe. Some saw angels, and some of them even saw Jesus. And then Luke and John record in their gospels that they all returned to their homes. And Mark even records that they went out and they fled from the tomb and they stayed quiet out of fear, and they hid. And then John records that they were in these rooms, and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And then we got this story that Vic preached on last week on the road to Emmaus, where two followers were met by Jesus and taught all about the scripture. And then they run back to tell the disciples in Jerusalem. It's about a seven-mile run late at night. And then they tell the disciples everything that Jesus had told them. Can you just imagine the emotion and the energy? This is now the third account that Jesus had been raised from the dead, from the women, from Peter, and these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
All that took place, and it brings us up to verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. Now, can you imagine being in that room before Jesus appeared? The full gamut of emotions I I imagine was going on. That the passion of Cleopas, he was the one on the road to Emmaus. The excitement, he just got to see Jesus. The guilt of Peter after denying Jesus three times. The excitement at the women that saw the empty tomb and possibly saw angels and Jesus. The confusion about the empty tomb. Was it really empty? Did someone steal the body? The doubt that everything they've done for the last years, giving up their family, their time and efforts, was it all worth it? And was Jesus even alive? The fear, I mean, the, the reason the doors were locked and they were hidden behind closed doors. And the anxiety, it's now the third day, and where's Jesus? Now, we don't know how Jesus got into the room, but he did so in a miraculous way that the disciples didn't expect it. I can't even begin to imagine the feelings and the thoughts that were going through them. The only thing I have to equate it to as I was trying to think through this was if uh, one of my little kids stole some candy and they were hiding from mom and dad and they were eating it and they weren't supposed to be and mom and dad kind of appeared around the corner. Just the look of fear and shock and surprise on their faces. And Luke says that they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. Of note, it says they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They weren't startled and frightened because they thought they saw a spirit. I genuinely do believe that they were scared and frightened because of the shame and the guilt and the feelings they've had for the last three days of them hiding, denying Jesus and fleeing and hiding. And then what happens? Jesus appears. They could not believe what they were seeing and they thought it was a spirit. They still didn't believe that Jesus was real at this point even though they already had three testimonies about his resurrection and he was standing in front of them. But what does Jesus do upon entering the room and even in the midst of this reaction and this doubt? He speaks peace over them. As I was reading over this and thinking through this scenario, I was amazed by the compassion and the understanding and the gentleness of Jesus. We kind of just sung about that in the goodness of God. And as recorded in Luke and the other gospels, Jesus is the first one to speak to the disciples. He initiates the continued relationship with them. He doesn't chide them or rebuke them or chastise them for what happened the last three days, nor does he even wait for them to apologize or to grovel or to perform some act of service or sacrifice or even understand what's happening at this point. He initiates and offers to them the peace where they are. Now, the term shalom, which means peace, it's the common uh, greeting of, the, of that day for the Jewish uh, custom as well as today. And some would argue that this is what Jesus is just doing. He's pretty much just saying hello when he entered the room. But nowhere else in Luke does he record a greeting such as this at the opening and ending of a conversation with shalom. I think this is a different type of peace that Jesus is speaking over his disciples and the people in the room at the time. This is the same type of peace that Jesus declared over creation in the raging sea, and he calmed the storm when he was on the boat with the disciples. I think this is the same type of peace that's recorded in the book of Philippians that transcends all understanding and not just a gentle greeting. It calms our hearts. It's the same reason that David in the Psalms can declare that he can rest in God no matter what's going on around him, even though it seems like the world is closing in and wants to destroy him. And it causes us to trust God. It's the same peace displayed by the disciples as we see throughout the New Testament, the book of Acts, when they were persecuted and put in jail and beaten and stoned 
and even martyred for their faith. Again, let's return back to the beginning of Luke. In Luke 2, when the angels tell the shepherds about the birth of Jesus, the heavenly hosts were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. Jesus is the fulfillment of the peace on earth for those shepherds, for his disciples, and for us today. He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus alone is our peace in this world. Now, Jesus is declaring this peace and comfort and steadfastness over his disciples and those people in the room in the midst of the scene of these locked doors with all their emotions and thoughts and fears and shame. This week, one of the dear families that we have here as members at our church uh, and just friends up in Stafford had a really hard week. The husband's been out of town for about a month with work and just everything seemed to kind of go awry. The upstairs bathroom started leaking destroyed the floor, came through the floor into the ceiling, destroyed the the ceiling on the bottom floor, and then to make matters worse, the air conditioning went out. And then on top of that, kids are kids. You know, disobedience, the struggles of life, of parenting, the busyness, being away from extended family, and then the temptation to doubt where God has them and what he's doing in their lives. But during the midst of all this, their middle child uh, sweetly told their mom, bad things will happen but Jesus has overcome the world, it says in the Bible. John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The resurrected Jesus has overcome the world, and we should have peace because of it. But Jesus does not just stop there with his disciples. He knows what their hearts are feeling, and he addresses their doubts that they're also feeling. Verse 39, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise arise in your hearts? See my hands and see my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. He sees their innermost thoughts and their feelings and this should encourage us. He already knows your innermost fears and your innermost thoughts and your doubts. Go ahead and express them to him. And we've already seen that the disciples did not fully believe. When the women went to the tomb, and I'm sure they questioned Peter and those on the road to Emmaus that came back and reported if, they even, if these things were real. And when Jesus appeared to him as himself, as we just read, they thought he was a spirit and they still continued to doubt. And Jesus does not look at them and say, I'm ashamed of you. Why don't you believe? Instead, he gently quells their doubts by using their human physical senses. So many people think that Christianity is a religion of belief in the unseen only that our faith is beyond logic and reason in the created order. But we see here that Jesus addresses their logic and reason using their senses of sight, touch, and hearing. Our God created logic and reason and science and math and the physical universe in our senses. And we should trust that he will use them for his glory to reveal himself and to comfort those people around him as he so chooses. We should look for his hand in all things around us. This is why the Psalms and Romans, as Travis mentioned earlier, talks about how all creation tells us about who God is. God can bring us comfort in our times of doubt through the things of like our mind, the people around us, and what we can see and what we can touch. Jesus is saying to the disciples, I am real. See for yourself. Touch me. Be assured that I am flesh and I am bone. I'm not something that you just made up in your mind. Again, he did not just appear to them and say, believe in me and all I have said, and then poof, disappear out of the room. We continue to see the gentleness and the patience of God 
and Jesus with his disciples and those in the room. And then we see their doubts after this start to begin to turn to joy and faith, as it says they were marveling and disbelieved for joy. Now, I think this is different than their initial doubt. This kind of means like they were speechless. They were overstimulated at what they were seeing. But Jesus still takes it another step further to address their doubts even more. He asks for something to eat. Now, do we really think that the resurrected Savior of the world needed food to sustain him right now? No, of, of course not, we don't. He is in his resurrected body, and he's the king of the universe. Yet again, we see Jesus being gentle with the disciples, with their, with their doubts, and reiterating to them again, I'm alive, and I am real. I am flesh, and I am bone. So the Jews believed in spirits, but they believed spirits couldn't eat based off of a, an interaction with an angel in the book of Judges. So Jesus was saying, look, I am not a spirit. See me eat this food before you. And then he took and he ate the fish. It was just not an attempt to make him think he was flesh and bone, but he actually proved that he was flesh and bone, as Luke records. Jesus could have easily chastised the disciples for their actions at his death, for fears of the tomb, for being behind locked doors, but instead he gently approaches them and speaks peace over them. And then he could even confronted them for not believing the accounts that they were told. But instead, Jesus patiently addresses their doubts and their fears. Now, there are many times in life and many things in Scripture God's going to call us to believe out of faith, things that we cannot see and things that we cannot touch. I mean, for us today, we, we can't touch the hands and feet of Jesus. But there will be times that the Lord assures us of his grace and his love for us and who he is through tangible things like the local church, the people around us, and through what we can see in creation, again, as Travis mentioned earlier in Psalm 19. Well, after this, Jesus then comforts them. Well, after he comforts them and reassures them, he then turns to instruct them and teach them. Verse 44 through 45. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. As Pastor Vic noted last week, Jesus takes the time to teach that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And he is the fulfillment of all prophecy in scripture that points to the coming Messiah. Luke uses the phrase here, the law of Moses and prophets and Psalms, which is different than what we see in most of the gospels. Most of the time, they just say the law and the prophets. I think he did this intentionally because most people think there is either two divisions or three divisions in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. So I think Luke is intentionally trying to describe for us here that all scripture, no matter what side of the fence you fall on, points to Jesus. Again, as Vic last Again, as Pastor Vic said last week, this is the reason we study the Old Testament in this church. We believe that the whole canon of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, is the inherent word of God and one whole story. We cannot and we do not parse out God's word. But to build upon his point from last week, we must read the Old Testament, but we must read it as Christians on this side of the resurrection, in the new covenant, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had to open their minds to understand the scripture. This is not something that they just did on their own, or could they even do on their own if they wanted to. Sometimes we think that the disciples were illiterate. They didn't know the Old Testament. They were just simple fishermen. But as Jewish men of that time, the large majority of them would have known about the law and the prophecy about the coming Messiah. But no amount of studying or knowledge or time or effort could have enabled them to see scripture this way that Jesus just taught them. 
We see this with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees of Jesus' time. If it was based off time and effort, they for sure would have seen Jesus for who he was and not crucified him. Jesus essentially rewires their brain and says, this is how you now need to read the Old Testament, in light of me, in light of my death, in light of my burial, and my resurrection. And we need the same rewiring of our minds when we read the Bible. For us today on this side of the resurrection, as we noted, this comes only by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 14, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is our Helper, the Spirit of truth, and he will teach us all things about the Scripture. Jesus tells his disciples to wait for this power in verse 39, and we'll see what this outpouring looks like as if you look through Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and how Peter uses the Old Testament to present the gospel to those in Jerusalem. So for us today, a little encouragement is how often in our Bible, reading time, uh, in the quiet time in the morning, or at a Bible study, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament passages that we don't understand, or we're kind of confused about, what's the immediate thing that we do? How many people turn to Google and just Google the answer? Um, How many people turn immediately to a commentary? Or as you're reading, you look at the bottom of your study Bible and look at the cheats at the bottom These things aren't bad, and I would encourage all of you to use these things. We live in a day and age where technology has allowed us to have so much information about Scripture. I would encourage you to read commentaries and doctrine, church history, and take classes on the Bible. But do not think for one minute minute, that these are more powerful than the insight of the Holy Spirit into His Word. Next time you come to God's Word, and even if you've just read a passage and you, know, you think you know exactly what it means, if you've read it a hundred times, or you even don't know what it means, take a moment to seek God's wisdom and his truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus opens their minds to understand the scripture, as we saw. And then Jesus gives a quick synopsis of what he kind of says the whole Bible teaches us. The first thing he says is that the Messiah must suffer. And this is different than what the Jews and the leadership at the time were expecting. They were expecting an earthly conquering king that was going to free them from the oppression of the Romans and have an earthly rule. But Jesus states that the scripture shows the opposite. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament in the prophecies. And as we walk through the book of Luke and how Jesus fulfilled those and how he brought his kingdom on this earth to the lowly, to the sick, to the least of these. And then he says that the Messiah would rise from the dead, verse 46. The Messiah would suffer and then he would die, but it wasn't the end. He would be brought back to life and reign forever. Repentance, and then he moves on to the third point. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, verse 47. And this is not a workspace requirement of being made right with God, but the salvation would come through the faith and the forgiveness of sins found only in the name of Jesus. And this forgiveness would turn people and cause them to repent of their disobedience and their shame and their sin. And this is the message we see that Jesus taught throughout his whole ministry, as well as John the Baptist throughout the Gospels. And this message itself right here, not a workspace relationship, not a workspace salvation, 
but forgiveness through the power of the name of Jesus is to be preached to all nations, starting with Jerusalem. The Messiah and salvation is for all people. From every background, every sin, every ethnicity, every gender, every race, every age, every creed. And this includes the Jews, but it's not limited to the Jews as they thought. And think for a moment about this grace, if it's supposed to go to Jerusalem first. These are the same people that just not three days ago murdered Jesus in a public and humiliating spectacle. And yet he still wanted his forgiveness and repentance in his name preached to them first. His salvation is for everyone. How dare we then say as Christians that someone's too far from God because of who they are, where they came from, who they were born to, or what they've even done, even in the last three days? Have you ever had someone also try and tell you that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament don't align? Well, Jesus right here tells us that it's all one story. And he claims that the Bible has a clear message from beginning to end. And that's the same message that Christ preached on the earth. And this is the same message we preach here this morning and every Sunday here at Redeemer. That the Messiah must suffer for our sins and be raised from the dead. And he is alive and he calls men and women to repentance in his name. And the reason people cannot see this, though, is that they're blinded just like the disciples. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to show us these things, to rewire our minds, to see God's word, and what he has intended. So after this message of peace and comfort and gentleness and teaching, we kind of move on to the last little part of Luke, where he ends with a description of Jesus ascending into heaven. Now, this is something many Christians actually don't talk about. We like to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but we kind of stop short before we get the ascension. But the ascension of Jesus into heaven is essential for our walk as Christians. We know that Jesus was on earth for about 40 days after his resurrection, and we know that he appeared to about 500 people during that time. So there's an obvious gap here between the first story and the second story. And again, it goes back to the beginning when I said how we need to read the Gospels. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke didn't think it was necessary to report this 40-day gap, but we can see it throughout the rest of Scripture. But at some time when they arrived at Bethany, Jesus blessed the disciples, and during this blessing, he miraculously ascended into heaven in some capacity that those who were with him could see him actually raised in his physical body up to heaven. His physical glorified body was carried up into heaven. It was not a hoax. Jesus is no longer alive and still with us on this earth, but he is alive and he is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven on our behalf. Hebrews 10:12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 4:14 4, through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What joy this should bring us as Christians and what encouragement this should bring us as Christians that we can approach the throne of God's grace with mercy and draw near to him because the physical resurrected Jesus is seated at his right hand. This Jesus whom all scripture prophesies about, who came to the earth in the form of a baby, who suffered and died at the hands of sinful men 
as a sacrifice for sin and as the penalty for God's wrath for our disobedience, he was raised on the third day and he is now reigning forever as the king and Lord of the universe. So now we kind of jump into what this means for the disciples. There's a kind of a, a barrage of different stories here. Why did Jesus do this for the disciples? Why does Jesus appear and comfort his disciples and speak peace over them? Why does he appeal to their doubts and their fears and show them that he is truly alive by showing them his hands and his feet to prove that he was flesh and bone? Why does he open up their minds to see what the Bible is truly intended to say? And why did he bless them and even allow them to be there at his ascension up into heaven in Bethany? Well, I don't think there's a complete concrete answer that covers all of that. We could say it's because of his nature and his character and his love for his disciples that we've seen. And this would be true. We could say that it would still fulfill the prophecies that were written about in the Old Testament that we've kind of already mentioned and he fulfills those. And this would also be true. But I want to see another aspect of this as well. None of these things he did, appearing to the disciples in the locked room, speaking peace over them, added to or took away from his resurrection or ascension. Jesus is still seated at the right hand of God, no matter if the disciples there or they weren't there. But I think it's because God designed his local church and his people to be the display of his hope for the world. Jesus tells them in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And then he promises the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that repentance and forgiveness was, be, was to be proclaimed starting with Jerusalem. So why did Jesus ascend from Bethany instead of Jerusalem? Bethany was a small town. It's about a mile and a half to two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's the hometown of Lazarus. And where we believe that Jesus would have stayed when he came to the city of Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. Why didn't Jesus just walk back into the center of the city of Jerusalem if that's where his forgiveness was first to be preached and show himself at the temple to Pontius Pilate and to Herod and to the council of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees, those who just murdered him and then ascend to heaven in this huge spectacle in the middle of Jerusalem. Could he have done that? Absolutely, but he didn't. He chose to do it in a small, intimate setting outside of the city with the disciples. And Luke records after this that Jesus ascends into heaven they worshiped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They finally saw Jesus for who he was and all their fears and all their doubts were conquered. They were no longer hiding in locked rooms or running to their homes. Jesus used his disciples, the ones whom he called, to be the ones that worship God for who he is and then to carry this message of joy of his death burial, resurrection, and ascension back into the temple in Jerusalem and as his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this is our great commission that we see in Matthew 28. And this is exactly what we see continuing through the book of Acts. The disciples boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, starting in Jerusalem and then all of Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And again, we go back to the beginning of the book of Luke where we started. In Luke 1, Zechariah, he was the priest. He was in the temple serving the Lord when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that he would bear a son that would be the herald of the coming Messiah. This was John the Baptist. And here in the end, we see the disciples back in the temple praising God and blessing God for what he has done. And now they're the promised heralds of the, coming, of the 
Messiah coming a second time, preaching the good news to those in Jerusalem. And church, I believe this is our duty. This is our call today as well, that we should be encouraged and strengthened from our doubts and fears by the resurrected and ascended Savior. And we are to be the heralds of Jesus and eyewitnesses to what he has done, as talked about in Luke 1 to the fact that our risen and ascended Savior and King of the world calls people to repentance and to the forgiveness of sins until he returns again. Acts 111 records this. Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way that you saw him go. God in his sovereign plan for some reason has chosen to use us, the local church, to be his witnesses. No other group or organization or individual or club or team can do this. It is only the local church, and it is our responsibility to be this herald of the risen, ascended king seated at the right hand of God to the world. Our risen and reigning king will return one day, but until that day comes, may we, one, find peace in Jesus for who he is. May we find assurance in our doubts in Jesus alone, and may we be encouraged by his word about who it says that he is. May we have, a, be a, have assurance of what we've been taught throughout the whole of scripture. And may we continue to be his bold witnesses to these things throughout all the world, to all people, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Lord, we praise you that you are the one who is seated at the right hand of God, that you alone are God, that you are the alone are the one worthy to be praised that Jesus, that you came and you did die and you were raised to life on the third day and you didn't stop there, Lord. You continue to speak to us today through your word, that you encourage us and call peace over our lives in the midst of so many things going on. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us as a church, that we would see our call before you to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth, to all people, that we would see you for who you truly are, and praise you and bless you in the midst of this congregation and as we go out today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.